यू आर लिस्निंग टू अमिंट प्रोडक्शन प्रॉट यू बाय एच टी स्मार्ट कास्ट द मार्च ऑफ नाइनटीन नाइनटी वन वॉज अ टर्निंग चंद्रशेखर गवर्नमेंट प्रेजेंटेड एन इंटरम बजट ऑन द फोर्थ ऑफ मार्च फाइनेंस मिनिस्टर यशवंत सिन्हा स्पोक इन द बजट स्पीच ऑफ अ फ्रेजाइल इकोनॉमिक सिचुएशन एंड अ माइक्रो इकोनॉमिक क्राइसिस बट कुड नॉट टेक करेक्टिव स्टेप्स रिक्वायर्ड बिकॉज द गवर्नमेंट वॉज पोलिटिकली टू वीक By May 1991, international rating agencies had downgraded India to below investment grade. India was on the brink of default on its international obligations, something that had never happened before. Mr. Sinha authorized the State Bank of India to sell 20 tons of gold from the Government of India's stock to the Union Bank of Switzerland. He also authorized negotiations for pledging 47 tons of gold from the reserves as collateral for a loan of 600 million dollars from the Bank of Japan and the Bank of England. They insisted that the gold should be physically shipped to their vaults in London. On 21st June 1991, a new government headed by P. V. Narasimharao was sworn in. It brought the crisis under control and reversed the economic policies of interventionism India had stuck to in the first four decades post-independence. These decisions changed the Indian economy unimaginably. Welcome to India's Reform Story. I'm your host Pooja Mehra. I'm an independent journalist and podcaster and the author of The Lost Decade 2008 to 18: How India's Growth Story Devolved into Growth Without a Story. India's Reform Story is a seven-part podcast in a series of seven conversations with economists, policymakers and commentators. I will unpack the story behind India's reforms and find out what went on behind the scenes and how successive prime ministers from Atal Bihari Vajpayee to Narendra Modi have taken these reforms forward Of the Vajpayee government's economic reforms the best known is the National Highways program rolled out in his tenure but so much more was done under him such as the successful cases of privatization and the deregulation of telecom which has completely changed the economy and everyday life in India When Mr Vajpayee became the prime minister the telecom sector was in complete disarray I asked Mr N K Singh who was the secretary in the prime minister's office at that time about the clean up and the total deregulation mr vajpayee got done mr singh has had a long career in government and has worked with a number of prime ministers he is the chairman of the 15th finance commission prime minister vajpayee was one of those who was uh, not quite pleased with giving speeches inaugurating major events with trade and industry or with any other stakeholder unless he felt that he had something useful to convey so actually when he had to speak to an audience at the fiki which i have mentioned in my book and i took the speech to him i was accompanied by sudhendra kulkarni at that time working in the prime minister's office and uh, he asked me the simple question that does this thing does this have anything new so uh, i stumbled and i said perhaps uh, not he said what is the use then he said think of a big idea are the words which he used so the hunt began for big ideas in the meantime the prime minister's office had begun correspondence with the ministry of roads and surface transport and the national highway authority of what it would cost to improve the highways double them and so on so forth so we we worked on this and then the idea came up that why doesn't the prime minister has the big idea announce the 
a golden uh, national quadrilateral, which linked all the four parts of India. And then subsequently what got added was also the spine, apart from the four corners, namely the northwest and east-west spine. So that he made the announcement to great acclamation at the, at the FIKI conference. The speech was redrafted and made more purposive for this purpose. I remember that uh, he was quite satisfied when late in the evening I had taken this, this speech in which this announcement was contained and he went through the wordings of it very carefully. And then this great, what is known as the big idea, was put in public domain through the announcement made by the Prime Minister. So that's one part of the story. The equally interesting part of the story is that he wouldn't believe in too much micro details, but he always wanted the big picture. So two months down the line, he one day asked me that, uh, wo ban hai ki nahi ban hai? Aapne badi karwa Maharaj banwavi I have written those exact words in my book, Maharaj banwavi dijiye. When Mr. Vajpayee became Prime Minister in 1998, the telecom sector was in a complete disarray. And then he went on to clean it up and telecom became one of the big reform success stories. If you could, you've given, you've shared a lot of details, you know, if you could share some of those. So in my book, I have recounted that when he became the Prime Minister, he found that the entire telecom sector was in a, in a, in a colossal mess. Banks had lent large resources to private telecom operators. The private telecom operators were unable to meet the contractual obligations in the bidding process through which, the, through which they had won those bids for various telecom circles. The cost of each telephone to the consumer was unexceptionally high and therefore the market size remained inevitably skewed. The issue of laying fiber optical cables for better connectivity had issues of serious financing. So I think that he inherited, in, in short, a great mess and he wanted to clean it up. He called some of us in the Prime Minister's office and said, find a solution. Now, the solutions were very complex. We had to move over to NTP 99 based on a, not auction price, a revenue sharing agreement. And this really resulted in a fundamental change in which the approach towards the telecom licensing was to be made in the future. Of course, there were many, many hurdles. Hurdles were not only on the initial hurdle of the revenue sharing arrangement, but how would the liabilities of the past, which had remained unpaid, uh, to be discharged by these uh, telecom companies. Now, that had moral hazard questions because uh, they also needed uh, some kind of a debt rescheduling. Um, the then Minister for Telecom, for very good reasons and for very good morally driven reasons, felt that the guarantees given by private operators must be encashed by the banks. Uh, this would have made the telecom operators bankrupt. Banks may or may not have been able to realize the uh, full amount of the outstanding dues. But then, the morally speaking, that was the right course of action. So how to really handle the past liabilities prior to the revenue sharing agreement was a complex issue. And I recall that continued, uh, since Mr. Jagmohan continued to persist in this, 
uh, Mr. Vajpayee was sagacious enough to realize that the multiplier effects of a properly functioning telecom ecosystem had huge growth gains in the future and that India was just beginning to experience the benefits of what the telecom revolution was to subsequently unfold. So, in fact, he, the portfolio of Mr. Jagmohan was changed. Mr. Vajpayee became the, the minister himself. I spent long hours with uh, the then Attorney General Soli Sorabji, who earlier had serious reservations on uh, the past liabilities and so on. And then all this was done uh, when Prime Minister became, Mr. Vajpayee himself became the telecom minister. And we see that not only the future was based on revenue sharing agreement, but the past liabilities were also uh, rescheduled in a manner which was considered more appropriate and more reasonable. So here was a very strategic intervention to prevent the collapse of what has turned out to be one of the important growth multipliers in the Indian economy, namely the salvaging of the telecom operations. I recall uh, anecdotally that I was uh, with Prime Minister Vajpayee during his famous visit to the United States uh, at the invitation of the then President Clinton and the Blair House where the Prime Minister was put up. Uh, at the Blair House, one of the things we had done was that we had invited all the successful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs in that little consultation room in the Blair House and the likes of Pinod Khosla, Kamal Rikhi, and some of the big names in the Silicon Valley, Chandrasekhar, they came. And it's quite interesting that I recall a statement by Kamal Rikhi that uh, when he asked him, Prime Minister asked him, that, what shall we do? He said, you have done one good thing, is that this sector has bloomed because it didn't have excessive government regulation by an excessively jealous department. I continue to do a very have a light regulatory touch to it. They also advised that he should open the telecom sector more fully in both cellular and in terms of basic. And I also recall that, therefore, uh, just preceding that, when he had addressed a meeting of the corporate entrepreneurs in, in New York on his way to Washington, he had made an impromptu announcement of a, a further de-licensing and deregulation of the telecom sector as a whole. So combined with all this, I think that it was a combination of his own judgment, his sagacity in recognizing the many multiplier gains of what telecom revolution could bring for India and taking decisions which were uh, not in the rule book, but which were really off the rule book but in the larger interest of India as a whole. So both in the case of roads, financing of the roads and the telecom, you see a symmetry. He never allowed departmental confines or what may be called departmental boundaries or silos to prevent him from taking decisions which were out of the rule book, but in the larger interest of India's economic growth. And in doing so, he had to face a lot of resistance, for instance, of DOT employees. 
and he had to work out a sort of a compromise to bring ah, him yes. around and this yeah, yeah. Uh, that, also ties that, in that, uh, yeah that puja is also ties in with the privatization success story of the vajpayee government the only government which has done meaningful privatization we've not really we do what is called disinvestment we don't really do privatization and you know maruti was, must have been very tricky so if you could you know talk yeah. about how he was able to overcome resistance yeah so i think that let me first comment on the first one so the corporatization of the bsnl was an issue which uh, the then minister for telecom late rambilas pasmanji he uh, felt that this would really be a far too audacious a change and was stalling the the date when the corporatization would be effected and in this process he was no doubt being encouraged by the telecom employees themselves who felt that the accountability in any corporate model is significantly different than the accountability in a government run department but mr pasman made an announcement of freebies of a certain amount of telephone calls and telephone availability and talk time to employees in the in the department of uh, telecom which was rightly opposed by the minister for finance and at that time and also by the prime minister himself i remember that the pasman was late rambilas ji was very very uh, persistent in his demand for the free bees and i think that then which i have described in the book the dramatic negotiations as mr vajpay was about to take off on a, a foreign visit with mr pasman on the line and uh, both were agreed mr pasman would announce the free bees to be implemented and at the same time announce a fixed date for the corporatization of the bsnl he felt that freebies was a much smaller concession to make than the long term gains of having bsnl privatization and which would have a, a very important a catalytic effect mtnl had already been uh, into a corporate entity and private players were there so again recognizing that mr vajpayee the great reconciler of contradictory points of view reconciling the sentiments of the then telecom minister for freebies late rambilas pasman along with the larger objective for the corporatization of the bsnl he achieved both in a manner which was uh, beneficial and acceptable to all stakeholders you mentioned about the privatization of maruti yes i remember that in the case of the corporatization of the of the maruti the then minister mr arun shori uh, faced innumerable opposition from the then minister who was looking after maruti the shiv sena representative uh, manohar joshi and uh, he mentioned that he was under instructions from the then head of the shiv sena so uh, uh, mr vajpay decided to go ahead with the maruti privatization he rang up the head of the shiv sena palasab thakre and explained to him that whatever may be his other reservations government important government decisions could not be hostage to any particular uh, point of view which uh, participating coalition governments can and that their concerns if any would be separately taken uh, care of but this program of privatization 
could not be put on hold. And imagine the privatization of Maruti, what the catalytic impact has had on the growth of the auto sector in India and the confidence and trust which it has given to the automobile sector, one of the important drivers of economic policy. Also, it's not easy for listeners to make the link between economic reforms and national security issues or, you know, you write off how the reforms pursued since 1991 strengthened Mr. Vajpayee's hand when he was deciding on consolidating India's nuclear power. So if you could, you know, explain how economic reforms become important in many ways which are not sometimes so easy to see for common people. An important question which you have raised, uh, Pooja. If you see 1991 economic reforms at that time, the crucial question was to stave off a balanced payments crisis uh, and prevent a debt default and to prevent the fair reputation of India to be to be preserved. Now, in this process, we were uh, dependent on external balanced payment support from the multilateral institutions, particularly the IMF and the World Bank and the regional development banks. Also in terms of the participation of what was then at that time known as the Aid India Consortium, members, participating members of the Aid India Consortium, which had Germany, UK, Japan to mention. The US direct aid uh, through USAID was rather limited. But the US and the other countries had a very strong say in the decision-making process of the multilateral uh, institutions of the world, particularly the World Bank, the IMF. Therefore, as long as we were dependent for our balance payment strategy on these entities, flexibility in the area of national security, I wouldn't say hostage, but flexibility was rather limited. So a decision like the nuclear explosion, everybody realized that it would be a power statement if we would really become a nuclear power to be recognized with, would have invited sanctions, which indeed it did. But the ability for the country to withstand those sanctions were dramatically higher when Mr. Vajpayee became prime minister. Then let us say hypothetically, if this was this decision had been taken by P. V. Darsimarao. And incidentally, uh, it has been recounted that uh, this option had been considered by Mr. Narasimharao as well. But then he was persuaded because our economy was still fragile. We were still dependent on multilateral institutions and that it, the issue of the, the sanctions creating very serious economic difficulties would tilt the balance in favor of staying away from taking uh, that very important decision. But then following the 91 reforms, the economy had begun to look looked up, our economic strength gathered momentum, our confidence gathered momentum. In 93, we had paid off all the debts to the International Monetary Fund. We were no more a program country of the IMF. Also, our dependence on the Aid India Consortium had greatly whittled down. Private capital was finding India an important leading destination. Only countries which are economically strong can also hope to become important defense and strategic partners.
Also, on the FRBM reform uh, initiated by the Vajpayee government, people often don't understand how significant it is because it strikes at the very uh, ability of politicians and governments to spend for garnering support, for garnering voter support, popularity. And uh, this was not done in times of crisis. It was done probably out of a sense of good, sound economics. If you could say something about the FRBM. Yeah. So, so, so I have mentioned uh, Pooja in my book that uh, if you look at India's balanced payments crisis and uh, the historical legacy of the balanced payments crisis, every time we have needed to take recourse to borrowings from the International Monetary Fund or liquidity support from project instrumentalities of the World Bank, this has been preceded by several years of fiscal profligacy. But such was the faith of the ruling uh, party at that time in the power of public outlay, which you have pointed out. Prime ministers and chief ministers all believed that the panacea to India's economic uh, stagnation was through enhanced public outlay. Because in the embedded psyche of a slightly socialistic streak in the Indian mindset, given the Fabian socialist traditions of the those who participated in India's free freedom movement and the initial leadership, uh, proximity to, to the Soviet Union and the centrally planned economies, had embedded in the national psyche a distrust of private capital and embracing of the power of public outlay. Now, this naturally led to years of fiscal profligacy resulting in successive bouts of balanced payments crisis with which India's economic history is riddled. So I think it took really long years to recognize uh, that enhanced public outlay, given the fact that quality of the outcome from these outlays remained problematic, difficult to quantify, and that private capital could be an important player in catapulting India's economic growth. It took really Mr. Vajpayee's period and the finance minister at that time, Mr. Yashwan Sena, in uh, dealing with uh, Mr. Vajpayee, persuading him in 2001, that we, want, we must avoid this repetitive phenomena. And uh, Vajpayee himself had seen very closely the evolution of our 1991 economic crisis. And whereas the 1991 economic crisis had many reasons, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Kuwait war, uh, the sudden increase in the price of oil at that time, one of the proximate factors is also was the couple of years of fiscal profligacy. So recognizing all this, he took the audacious step that merely saying that we believe in fiscal uh, rectitude is not enough. This must be embedded in a, a proper rule, a proper legislation. And the first FRBM Act was enacted and was uh, thought of it in 2001 and enacted in 2003. And that, I think, for the first time in Mr. Vajpayee's period was a recognition that macroeconomic stability mattered and a centerpiece of the macroeconomic stability lay in a policy of fiscal rectitude, which is not normal to the species of uh, uh, Indian political leaders embedded in populist parliamentary democracies which greatly believe in the power of public outlay. And my last question for today, uh, you know, you worked on Mr. Peter Dhamnam's budget of 1997. Why is it called the dream budget? I don't know. 
because it's a very difficult question. It is called a dream budget, I guess, because uh, it took some unconventional and audacious steps in the rationalization of the direct income tax or direct taxes in general, but income tax in particular. If you see the period before that, the India's tax regime was littered with multiplicity of rates, both on direct and indirect taxes. On the income tax side, there was a period much earlier when the uh, tax, marginal tax rates on income were so atrociously high that the equation between work and leisure uh, tilted the scales in favor of leisure and sort of work because he, of almost the very high users rates of uh, <clears throat> at which uh, income tax was 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 levied. Well, Mr. Chidambaram's budget of 97, of which I was closely associated with being the revenue secretary at that time, took the audacious step of rationalizing the income tax rates into just three rates, 10, 20, 30 flat. At that time, there were no surcharges either. Now, it has to be given to the credit of the then Prime Minister H.C. Devi Gorda that his own innate common sense and judgment tilted in favor of accepting this. We had given two models to him, one model in which it was 10, 20, 30, and the second model in which it was the, the higher rate was somewhat higher, and all rates had been reached higher. This was because some people felt that 10, 20, 30 for a country, a poor country like India, was not progressive enough. And whether the tax rates were regressive, which was given the fact that our per capita income was so low, and given the fact that you needed public outlays at a certain level, was perhaps unacceptably low. So I think that when we took these both these models, I remembered of that uh, meeting in Mr. Gorda's room, with finance minister was present at that time. Mr. Gorda, principal secretary at that time, was one Mr. Satish Chandran, which I, whom I mentioned in my chapter on the Prime Minister's office. And we presented both these options to Mr. Gorda, the 10-20-30 and the somewhat more progressive one, where the rates were higher. He asked me what was my own preference. Well, I looked at finance minister and he said, go on, give the answer. So I said, my own preference was 10, 20, 30. He asked me why, and I gave the reason that this would have a huge multiplier effect in terms of putting premium on generation of income and generation of wealth and so on. And then he looked at his principal secretary, Siddhish Chandran, who said that I agree with the revenue secretary. And then he looked at Mr. Chidambaram and had only one word to say, Approved. Chidambaramji, don't be afraid. So we walked out of the room of the fact that um, Mr. Gorda, not necessarily a very specialized economist, had opted for such a deep simplification and rationalization of income tax rates, which uh, people used to multiplicity of rates and very high rates of income tax and so on and so forth, found it really very, very attractive. And we followed this up by voluntary disclosure income scheme, perhaps the most successful scheme so far, in which we were able to instill the requisite trust for people to voluntarily declare their unaccounted uh, income and wealth, given the fact that the rates were exceedingly attractive at that time. And therefore, taking everything into account, it uh, acquired the label 
of a dream budget. Dream because this is what people would really wish for and had wished for a long time. Of course, the daunting challenge of cleaning up the income tax and the excise rates uh, still remained problematic, which also was subsequently done. So the deep rationalization of India's taxation structure, of which this 97 budget was an integral part, was, I think, that therefore required that popular nomenclature of a dream budget. When we talk about reformer prime ministers, Mr. Devigoda is usually not mentioned. Many reformers do not get their fair share of the credit for reforms accomplished. Let me end this episode with an excerpt from a speech Prime Minister Vajpayee gave in New Delhi on 5th of December 2000. At an average GDP growth of 6.5% a year, India in the 90s has been among the 10 fastest growing economies of the world. We want to do even better in the decade that has just begun. We have pledged to double upper capita income in the next 10 years. This implies a growth rate of around 9%. Although it is a difficult challenge, India can achieve it. India will achieve it. In the last decades of our development, we have built a strong and resilient India, but we have also drawn lessons for the future. We have rethought about the respective roles of the state and the private sector for economic development. The first point of change has been to free government from providing private goods and services to use its resources to provide public goods. This has involved far-reaching changes in fiscal, financial, social and institutional arrangements. While significant progress has been made, considerable work remains to be done. Second, to create an environment where private initiative can flourish and where entrepreneurship and innovation are rewarded, that is why, through progressive liberalization, we are expanding business opportunities both domestic and foreign. Rules and procedures which hinder private initiative are being changed or readapted. In the process, reforms have touched most areas of the economy industry, infrastructure, international trade, foreign exchange market, financial systems, and taxation. Even as he had just acknowledged the reforms done by the previous two governments, Mr. Vajpayee went on to enumerate his own government's initiatives. We shall complete a project to build 13,000 kilometers of improved and expanded national highways by 2000. The first component of 7,000 kilometers involving four major metros will be completed by 2003 itself. A massive rural road connectivity program is there. The deregulation in the area of telecommunications is more or less complete. We have fully liberalized national long-distance basic telephony and undersea optical cable. We are considering how best to fully deregulate cellular telephony. The monopoly of the VSNL will end by nearly 2002. Financial sector reforms are being continued. New measures are being adopted to minimize the non-performing assets. We have opened up the insurance sector. The Insurance Regulatory Authority informs me that the first batch of private licenses will be issued by the 1st of October this year. The Reserve Bank of India is willing to consider further expansion of foreign private banks in India. Our tax rates are moderate and compare with the best you have anywhere in the world. We recognize that further tax reforms are necessary. We have therefore decided to constitute a tax reforms commission to lay down the roadmap for further tax reform and what is more, reform tax administration. Disinvestment of government's holding in Air India is well on course. The necessary advertisement will be issued within a fortnight's time. We need to attract large investments in the power sector. We shall speed up reforms in this crucial sector, both at the centre and in the states. Even last week, we have substantially relaxed sectoral caps in respect of a number of areas for foreign direct investment. The disinvestment and privatisation programme of a large number of public corporations and selected utilities is moving ahead with full speed. Only a week ago, we have finalised definite milestones that will enable the privatisation programme to cover many large undertakings. Mr. Vajpayee's vision could not be completed and many of the items on this list remain pending even today. 
Growth started slowing down after the shock of the global financial crisis in the year 2008, not only in India but around the world. We will talk about the future of reforms in the next episode. But Mr. Bajpayee's clarity of thought is unmistakable in his speech. This was a Mint production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.